Welcome to the Beyond Devices podcast. Uh, you may notice this right from the beginning. The audio quality may be a little uh, less good than you're used to from us, and that's because I'm sitting in a car parked in the parking lot at Infinite Loop uh, after attending the Apple event where they introduced the iPhone SE and the new 9.7-inch iPad Pro. Aaron is still... Um, at home this time around and so his audio quality should be a bit better but as we mix the two together you may see some degradation but we did this uh, I think with the fall event where we did a recorded the episode right after the event and then discussed the event pretty much in order um, and uh, that's what we're going to do again today so apologies if there is any kind of uh, decline in audio quality it'll be a one-off thing but hopefully the timeliness of the subject matter and, and the discussion will make it interesting and worthwhile anyway. So again, uh, I'm Jan Dawson. Uh, I realize we haven't introduced ourselves for a while beyond just saying our names at the beginning. So just as a reminder, uh, I'm the chief analyst of Jackdaw Research, um, which is a research and consulting firm which focuses on the consumer technology market. Apple is one of the companies that I cover there. Uh, Aaron, do you want to just introduce yourself quickly as well? Sure. So I'm Aaron Miller. I'm a professor at the Marriott School of Management, which is the business school at BYU. Uh, where I teach, among other things, business ethics and social entrepreneurship. Great, thank you. And so we do this podcast every week. It's somewhat Apple-centric, but we try to cover other companies too. This week it will be an Apple-centric episode. Uh, we both have blogged at the Beyond Devices blog, and I also blog in various other places and, and write for other publications too. But we'll put links in the show notes at podcast.beyonddevices. But with that, we'll get kicked off with this episode. And again, we're going to discuss the news from today pretty much in the order that things were announced. And so that means starting with the preamble um, from both Tim Cook and then from a couple of other people as well. Um, in our episode last week, we kind of covered what we expected to see this week. And one of the things we talked about was, would Apple mention the FBI case and, and in how much detail? And uh, my prediction was that the word FBI would never be mentioned, but that it would be a theme nonetheless. And that was pretty much the way things panned out today. Um, the case wasn't mentioned in specifics, but it was certainly alluded to in generalities. And Tim Cook really sort of put his foot down about taking a stand uh, for privacy and security on behalf of customers um, and standing up to the government where necessary to preserve those things. Um, and it was interesting. I mean, being in the auditorium, um, there were quite a few Apple employees and kind of get a sense of where they are because they clap at everything. Um, and then you've got a lot of press and analysts who generally don't clap at things. And that was really the one line was when, when he finished that little monologue about uh, privacy and security. That was kind of the one line that really got applause from throughout the auditorium and not just from the Apple employees. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah, the only thing that surprised me is it, it was pretty brief. I mean, he was straight to the point. He didn't spend very much time at all and they kept moving. I, I, I was expecting something a little more about why it matters and how it could matter and, you know, and maybe some details, not unlike the environment and health announcements that we're going to talk about in a minute. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I'm glad to see that Apple didn't waste the opportunity because it's a huge megaphone they have in these events and it's important for them to state their values really clearly. Yeah, it was interesting. I mean, I feel like Tim Cook's done these interviews. There was a Charlie Rose one. There was a Time one. I think there was a CNBC one this morning as well. Um, you know, so he's been kind of making his case in various places. And so I wonder if to some extent they didn't want to detract from today's event by talking a lot about these other things, which will be talked about plenty the rest of this week. I mean, the, the case itself, the hearing is tomorrow. Um, there's going to be lots of other stuff. It was interesting talking to a lot of the Apple reporters that are here at the event. You know, they're having a crazy week, you know, and a lot of them having to do double duty covering this event and then the hearing tomorrow. And, um, you know, the Apple Samsung case that we talked about in episode 11 of the podcast has just 
gone to the Supreme Court, uh, which is going to pick it up. And so there's just so much stuff to cover at the moment at a time when the tech industry in general seems to be making very little news. Um, and so, yeah, anyway, lots to talk about. But I, I just felt, and this was kind of why I predicted this is the way it would go, is that they don't want to detract from what's ultimately a product announcement today. Having said that, they then went on to talk about two other things that were kind of about burnishing their corporate social responsibility credentials to some extent. Um, you know, interesting, in the fall event, there was almost no preamble at all. It launched right into product announcements. And a big part of that was that they had two hours worth of product announcements to make. And today, the whole event took an hour. And that was within tw with 20, 25 minutes up front of this other stuff talked about. So this was much lighter on product news. And so they had time and space to do it. But I certainly saw people saying, you know, this is part of this story, like we're not this evil company that's trying to block the government from finding terrorists, you know, and they talked up the environmental stuff, talked up the health stuff. Um, I was really glad to see Lisa Jackson on stage, actually. She's, if you follow any of the Apple executives on Twitter, she's one of the more active ones. Um, that's partly she's relatively new to Apple. She was, you know, environment secretary in the US for a while and, um, or head of the EPA, I guess is, I think, probably her, her technical title before she came to Apple. But she's very much more comfortable with having kind of a public profile than some of the other Apple executives are. And so she's been active on Twitter and elsewhere. And so I'd long thought it was, you know, overdue for her to have a, a an onstage role at one of these events. And so I was really happy to see her there and very articulate, very compelling talking about these environmental initiatives at Apple. What did you make of all of that? I thought she did an awesome job. And uh, I think... You know, Apple seems to be very taking very seriously the the diversity issues in the tech sector, and and it sends a strong message that this is something that they care about. I, and the content of the environment announcements was really great. I I think one of the things that blew me away was the reliance on renewable. I think company wide they're at ninety three percent reliance on renewable energy, which is just phenomenal. And you know, granted, Apple's in a unique place to be able to do that because they have so much cash available for infrastructure investments. But the fact that this is where they direct their energy, um, direct their resources to get renewable energy, I think um, really spoke highly of them. I, You know, the, the thing, this is the truth of it, is it, there is like a, a corporate social responsibility, you know, sort of PR benefit of these announcements. But what seemed really obvious is that for Apple, this is about the values driving their company as much as anything else. In fact, right up front, you saw three core values to the way Apple operates. It was privacy is a really big deal. It's essential to Apple's values, environment and sustainability. And then and then health, although I don't know you'd say, you'd say that health is a value in and of itself, but certainly improving the lives of their users is and taking every opportunity to do that. And, and and I think the health announcements gravitate toward that. Apple is and in fact will be held up, I think, in the years to come as a it's a values driven company. They have clear central corporate values that permeate the organization and guide the decisions that they make. And and those and that's why I think more than anything they spend so much time on those things today. I mean you don't produce a video you know, showing off this brand new robot that you invented for recycling iPhones. If, uh, you know, if it's not something that you really kind of love and want to brag about, not just something that you're sort of, you know... You're checking um, some CSR checking, box. Right, yeah. exactly, checking a box to make sure that the media and Greenpeace are happy. Right, right, absolutely. Yeah, now I, I think this has been one of the more interesting changes since Tim Cook took over from Steve Jobs, because Steve Jobs had personal values um, that he felt very strongly about, but he rarely used Apple to try to 
sort of promote those in the world, you know, like, um, you know, he was a vegan and, and, and had all these other sort of personal lifestyle choices that were very important to him, but it, they were very separate from Apple. And um, he never seemed all that keen on using Apple's megaphone in the world to try to achieve broader sort of societal objectives or anything else like that. And it feels like Tim Cook's very different, whether it's on this issue of the environment, whether it's on, the, I mean, privacy and security were always things that Steve Jobs talked about, but that was because they were kind of inherent to Apple's products. Um, you know, I think the environmental stuff is interesting because it's the one of those, the one out of those three things they talked about at the beginning of today's events that's really nothing to do with making the products better, quote unquote, at what they do. You know, the the um, privacy and security is a fundamental aspect of those products. It's the reason why people buy the products and it affects how people use them and the value they get out of them. Uh, the health stuff is very much, a, to your point just now, about improving the lives of users and the people around the users. Um, the environmental stuff doesn't actually improve the life of the user at all. You know, in general, hopefully it improves society, improves the world we live in and prevents some of the, the climate change and everything else that we talk about. But, um, you know, this is something that Apple does because top people at Apple believe that it's important to do. And so that's been an interesting departure. And the fact that Apple's talked about it so publicly, it's really been a fairly significant change over the last few years. And obviously Lisa Jackson's appointment and the fact that she's now got this very public profile and everything else, that, that does feel like a change. Uh, and the health stuff and various other causes that Tim Cook and others have kind of put Apple's money or, or um, uh, clout behind in different ways, you know, that, that's been one of the more interesting changes for me. I think one of the things that's especially interesting about it to me is that Apple, I mean, part of Apple's values also includes being the best at what they do, right? They want to be the best in the world at whatever it is that they do. And it turns out it's not just products. I think what was really clear from the keynote today when it came to the environment and health announcements and also to an extent privacy, even though they didn't spend a lot on it, a lot of time on it, is that they want to be at the best. They want to be the best in the things that matter to them, not just in the products that they produce. Right. And, you know, Apple's announcements today based, it had the same fit and finish and core messaging style and approach and, and everything to their product announcements, but they were talking about health and environment. And I think it just reflects the fact that Apple wants to be the best and be known as the best in, in, in all the things that matter to Apple, not just their products. Right, right. No, absolutely. Agreed. Uh, on the health side, I thought it was a very interesting shift from research kit to care kit. Um, you know, and this is something that we talked about, I think, in our CES episode a few weeks ago. But at CES, one of the things that became apparent was that some of the health and fitness and wearable technology was moving from just tracking and monitoring you know, whether it's fitness or even existing conditions where it's sort of passive and it's about recording what's happening in the body to starting to treat and actually care for some of the stuff. And care kit feels like it's part of that so that you're now not just tracking your Parkinson's, for example, but potentially helping to treat it and helping to find out, you know, what works and, and how to improve the treatments and all the rest of it and, and actually uh, moving forward and, and taking a more active role in dealing with some of these uh, chronic illnesses and so on. And so I thought that was really interesting to see Apple now at the forefront of that trend as well. Um, and Jeff Williams, you know, I mean, this was a great thing about having Lisa Jackson and Jeff Williams on stages. Each of them seems to care very much about these respective products that they're in charge of, or, or projects rather, whether it's the environment and the other sort of social responsibility stuff that Lisa Jackson heads, or whether it's, you know, in this case, research kit and health uh, and so on more broadly for Jeff Williams. But they really seem to care very much about these things, and that, that passion kind of showed through. Yeah, I agree. I always enjoy Jeff Williams on stage. He just seems like a nice guy. Yeah, very kind of earnest. He's a, yeah, yeah, he's got a very earnest charisma to him. That way, mm -hmm. I agree. No, I, you know, the thing about the health announcements when 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 Jeff talked about the 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 piece of paper you take home after you get a world class 
you know, surgical procedure mm -hmm. done, you know, you take this piece of paper on. This happened to me a couple of years ago and I just chuckled at it, right? Because right. at the time it didn't really occur to me how ridiculous that comparison was that I could go from, you know, having an outpatient surgery where I could be, you know, in the hospital and out in a couple of hours. And, and it was really kind of miraculous by, you know, history of the world kind of standards. Mm. And then I'm sent home with a piece of paper that I'm just supposed to sort of, I don't know, somehow remember right. to do all the things that right. I needed to do in recovery. Yeah. And it was sort of crazy. And I, I can see, you know, it's funny because a lot of the kit, um, a lot of these uh, developer kits that Apple has, the ones that they've made public, you know, noise about like health kit, car kit, um, research kit, it seems to have been one of the more successful ones in the short term. I mean, car kit has been a really slow burn and, mm -hmm. and you could say the same for health kit and, and, uh, home kit, who knows what's still going to happen with that. But research kit has done all this amazing stuff in the background. It's really cool to see the way Apple has and his partners have made good use of that. And because research kit has been so successful, I'm optimistic, I'm optimistic on the, you know, on the care kit thing. Mm -hmm. I can picture a lot of hospital systems, setting up care kit apps, you know, and uh, if only because it leads to cheaper care, right. right? When you have customers that are following through on their, on their, you know, post-procedure care, it means less doctor's visits, less prescriptions, yeah. you know, less uh, repeat, um, you know, less complications. And I, I could picture insurance companies getting really excited about this too. Yeah, absolutely. No, agreed. And it's, I mean, it's interesting because, um, you know, car kit hasn't moved fast because cars take forever to get off the right. production line. You know, this stuff gets designed years ahead of time. And, you know, I, I think about when I went to um, the car show in New York a few months ago and, you know, somebody was telling me about cars rolling off the production line now when they were building them, they were trying to figure out whether they needed to include MySpace integration. <laughs> um, you know, that was just kind of as a sign of how long the cycles are on this stuff. And the great thing about research kit is that, you know, the medical severe can be really slow moving too, especially when it gets tied up with regulation and FDA and equivalent approvals around the world and so on. And what's amazing here is that people have just jumped on this stuff. And Apple has partnered very directly with some of these uh, big hospitals and other research institutions. But, um, you know, they've really jumped on it and moved with it. They haven't waited around to see what other people are doing, but they've really gone for it. And that's been one of the coolest things about it is that the, the healthcare community is behaving kind of like developers are, um, you know, where they, they grab one of these new things and go, look at all the amazing stuff that can be done and they just run with it. Um, and so that's been really fun to see. Well, let's move on to, um, was there anything else that you wanted to say about the kind of upfront preamble stuff? Uh, just that um, you kind of got the vibe it was going to be a, a low-key keynote. Mm-hmm because of the topics that they chose and the amount of time they dedicated right. to them. I remember just thinking to myself, boy, there's, this is going to be small potatoes, this whole event yeah. compared to some of the events of the past. Yeah. Not that what they were saying wasn't important, but uh, mm -hmm. Apple gave them a lot of stage time and attention. Yeah. yeah, this wasn't going to be some flashy event with huge product announcements. And we kind of knew that from the reporting ahead of time. And we talked about a lot of that last week as well. But um, okay, well, let's move on then to the, the product announcements. I guess we start briefly with the Apple Watch stuff. Um, just a few new bands, uh, some new woven nylon bands, um, which, um, you know, it's not, not for me, frankly. I don't see any interest in those, but I did have a look at them. They're very lightweight. Um, you know, they feel like fabric. They're, they're flexible, but still pretty tough and durable feeling. Um, so that, that was a big kind of new thing. Then there were some new options for... 
some of the leather bands and there's a black Milanese loop now as well. Um, you know, they just keep expanding and these sport bands as well in different colors. So they just keep expanding this stuff. And it was interesting to hear Tim Cook refer to this as the, their spring lineup of Apple watch bands, which I don't know. I'm not, I'm not a huge fashion person, but it, it felt like borrowing terminology from, you know, this is our spring line, you know, uh, kind of borrowing that fashion terminology, which they've done with the Apple watch right from the beginning. And of course, in the other Apple news, uh, the Apple watch news was the drop in the entry price for the Apple watch down to 299 from 349. The price drop was totally unexpected mm, for me. Yeah, and and when it hit, the very first question I had was, "What does this mean for the new watch announcement that's you know supposed to be happening this fall?" Right. Like, because that's always the question is when Apple you know releases a new product line, what happens to their price points? Because Apple tends to be pretty loyal to those price points. Mm -hmm. And it just made me wonder, okay, so what happens with the new watch? I mean, is it that Apple settled into what they clearly see as being the right price entry for, you know, watch buyers? Or instead, is it just that, you know, they recognize that, you know, this is a year old now and mm -hmm. it's going to be a year and a half old by the time they announce the new watch models. Right. And so what... Uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see how Apple treats price. I wouldn't be surprised for that to go either way, mm -hmm. where they maintain the price points for the new ones they introduce, or they bump everything back up again by 50 bucks. Right. Yeah, I know it's interesting because a lot of retailers, Best Buy and so on, have been selling them for less anyway. So, um, you know, even though the Apple headline price was still 349 and up, you know, from a lot of these companies, the price had already dropped to 299 and sometimes even below that. And so, um, it's this new world, and again, that's something we talked about on a previous episode, but the way that Apple is pricing now and the flexibility that it's giving its third-party retailers has increased quite a bit. Um, and so we've seen some sort of uh, some of that discounting already. But it's interesting. It's just that I just checked on the Apple website, actually, and it's just the entry-level the watches, the sport watches. The other ones seem to have stayed at the same price. Um, so that's interesting. So it's really just about reducing the bottom end of the price range. So I could still see the more premium devices getting a, a discount um, when they are replaced, essentially, in the fall, assuming that they are replaced in the fall. Um, so maybe they were just kind of moving this up in order to kind of drive volumes and that kind of thing and perhaps try to uh, empty out the inventory over the next few months so that they can get ready for new devices come September. Uh, so let's talk about the iPhone SE. Um, this is arguably kind of the biggest announcement of the event. Um, it was widely reported ahead of time. I think, uh, to my mind, the only real surprise was the price. Um, and we should talk about that specifically. But, you know, smaller phone, essentially all the same specs and features as the iPhone 6S line, with the exception of 3D Touch. Everything else is there. Everything else is the same componentry, the same uh, performance and so on. Um, you know, very, very similar performance. And yet this device will be in the outward sort of packaging of the iPhone 5S, but with matte chamfered edges rather than shiny ones and with an inset stainless steel Apple logo in the back instead of what it used to be. Um, you know, pretty minor cosmetic changes, but basically the same look and feel as the iPhone 5S. And I've actually had an iPhone 5S sitting on my desk for the last few weeks for reasons I won't go into, but, you know, looking at the iPhone SE on display at the event today, with the exception of the Touch ID um, sensor, the chamfered edges, and various other things like that that look slightly different on this one. Um, very, very similar to, to that device outwardly. So, um, but priced at $400. So, you know, that was the big surprise for me. What was your initial take on all that, Aaron? 
Well, I honestly think six months ago when I upgraded, I would have gotten the iPhone SE instead of the 6S. I, 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 I like the smaller size. I'm in that group of people that would prefer a smaller phone. And the, I mean, really the only meaningful thing that seems to be missing from the SE versus the iPhone 6S is the 3D touch feature. And that's not something I, I use a lot. I mean, I use it occasionally, probably more in one or two apps than anything else. But, uh, but man, I, I think to date, my favorite of all the different iPhone designs has been the 5S design. And, uh, and so I, I think it's great they brought it back. I know there's been some grumbling about Apple holding on to, you know, a three and a half year old or four year old, um, industrial design, but it, but it really is, I think one of the best that they've ever done. And, uh. And so I, I, I think that would have been my phone had I not upgraded to a 6S six months ago. So you're our focus group of one here. What is it about smaller <laughs> phones that you, that you like? I mean, from what I've heard from, and the reason I ask that is just the vast majority of people I've spoken to who have kind of been forced into or forced themselves into upgrading to a larger screen go, oh, yeah, this is great. Why did I not want this? You know, I, I love it. The screen's bigger. Everything's bigger on it. And I can see, you know, videos and pictures better and all the rest of it. Like, I haven't heard that many people who've gone to one of these larger phones say, oh, I want to go back again. And you clearly do want to go back. So what is it about the smaller uh, size that you like better? It's it's most, above everything else, reachability with my thumb. Mm-hmm. My, I mean, I don't have especially small hands, but I hate having to shift the phone in my hand to be able to reach the top left corner. And I think, and the, you know, and double tapping the home button to bring down the screen um, is also just an annoying extra step. I, I like having the entire screen of my phone reachable so I can use it one-handed. And I think that's, I think that's it more than anything else. I mean, I, I, I don't use my phone as a primary screen very often. Um, you know, I usually, when meetings and other situations, have an iPad with me. And so, or at home too. And so I'm not using my phone as a primary screen very much at all. And so the time that I am using it, I, the convenience matters to me much more than, you know, having a tiny bit of extra space. Cause it doesn't, that was the other thing is it didn't feel like for me, when I switched from the 5S to the 6S, I didn't feel like I all of a sudden had all this, you know, leg room. Mm. Like it didn't feel like I was all of a sudden in a much more spacious area. It, so I, I think that was mostly it for me. Um, obviously, the reason I upgraded had everything to do with the other features, the right. speed, the, cam- right. the camera, the, um, you know, the Apple Pay. Those are the things that got me really excited about the upgrade. And, and, and w- with the exception of the size, I've loved pretty much everything else about, about the success. But, um, mm. And I wouldn't have mind, mind, minded paying less, too. Sure. You know, that's always not something to ignore. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, it's fascinating. Let's talk about the price for a minute because there's at least a couple of ways of looking at it. And one is you've got the iPhone 6S Plus starts at 750. You've got the iPhone 6S that starts at 650. Uh, and here you've got a device, you know, other than 3D Touch, it's just smaller. Uh, and so if you followed that same pattern, you'd end up at 550. And so that was always kind of the ceiling for where I imagine this might end up. Uh, it was also likely to replace the 5S in the lineup. And so that was priced at 450. And so that made a lot of sense as sort of another possible price point for it. And yet here it is at $399. And so it's $50 less than the phone it's replacing, even though it's a much better phone, uh, really across the board. Um, And it's $250 less than 
the next biggest phone in the current lineup. Um, and so at $400, it's $150 less than the previous cheapest brand new iPhone, which was the 5C a couple of years ago. Um, you know, Apple's always introduced them at, you know, 650 and then that was the one exception at 550 and it really wasn't a brand new phone. It was just a new form factor. Um, so this is kind of a radical departure and you know, from a price differential perspective, both against the 5S that it replaces and against the 6S, which is kind of its big brother or sister, you know, a massive drop. And so, um, yeah, that was the biggest surprise to me was this price, which just suggests to me that Apple's really priced this thing to sell and to sell in big numbers. And I think it was going to do that anyway. I mean, Apple on stage talked about, you know, we sold three, 30 million four-inch devices last year, so in 2015. And so, you know, there's demand for these devices was the key point there. But what they didn't say, and it's impossible to quantify, is how many people have four-inch devices were due for an upgrade last year but didn't buy a new phone? and just hung on to the one they had. And I'd guess that's at least as large a number, if not larger. Um, and so that's the target basis is going after, is that base of people who have a 4-inch or smaller phone, don't want a, gi a gigantic uh, iPhone 6 or 6S phone uh, to replace it, and haven't really had a recent option to, to do that with. And so targeted at that group are now priced at $400. Uh, you know, this thing could sell in very significant numbers. And launching it now means, and we kind of talked about this a bit last week, but means you've got these spring and summer months that are usually very quiet for iPhone sales relative to Q4 and Q1, where this thing could really sell in enormous numbers and make a big difference in overall iPhone sales. And so um, that's fascinating to me. Yeah, it, it, the, you know, it, it's interesting. I don't remember in Apple's guidance them indicating that there was going to be any, you know, big change in margins in their projected margins. Mm -hmm. And uh, that price would have made me wonder if they're sacrificing margins just a little bit yeah. for this, you know, iPhone that seems to have, you know, it definitely gets them even closer to emerging markets mm. where, you know, they're, 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 they're going to be much more affordable to a, a new swath of people in China and India. Yeah. And so I wondered if that was part of what was going on there, but, I, I don't remember them having guidance that indicated that they that their margins were going to suffer. Well, the very thing much, with the guidance is it's, it's quarterly, right? And so the quarter ends with this month, and this thing doesn't start shipping until March thirty first. And so any impact on margins is really going to be felt. I mean, there'd be a tiny impact from manufacturing and so on, maybe, but really the impact on the guidance would on the actual financial results and on margins specifically would hit next quarter. Um, that's a great point. So, Maybe we'll see something happen. Yeah, and so that's yeah. one of my big questions for this current this coming earnings call is what impact does this have on margins and what impact is it going to have on ASPs as well? Because, you know, the ASPs been up fairly significantly since they launched the iPhone 6. So the average selling price has been in the high $600 range. Um, you know, you suddenly bring in a phone that sells in significant numbers in Q2 and Q3 calendar. Um, at you know four hundred dollars, you know what's that going to do with the ASP? You could easily see it dropping down to six hundred or something um, if these sell in large numbers. So I, that's going to be very interesting to watch for on the earnings call in a few weeks' time. Yeah, I agree. Another thing that just feels strange to me now is the 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 positioning of the iPhone six. I do, I don't get it because that is to say, I, I it didn't even occur to me what would happen to that phone when the SE was announced, but. It really feels like an odd duck at this point because the price savings aren't that dramatic versus the 6s. The um, the the phone is worse in many ways than the SE. It has an older processor. Mm -hmm. It doesn't record 4K video. 
Um, I mean, it's it's a less impressive phone than all the rest of them. In fact, the only advantage it has over the SE is its size. But in every other respect, it's a worse phone. And you'd have to really want a bigger phone but not be able to afford a success. It just feels like this tiny sliver of iPhone buyers that would actually want an iPhone 6 versus all the other models. It'll be interesting to see what... I mean, not that we'll ever know from Apple, right. you know, what the mix is on as far as sales go, but... But it is kind of a, it just feels out of place now because because the SE upgrade sort of felt like okay the whole line is now up to date and then I remembered no they still have the six what a weird mm. what a weird phone to have right now and and so I'm I'm curious if if that's going to be worth keeping around and and I could see Apple eventually ditching mm-hmm. the last year's model approach if they keep the SE regularly up to date. Yeah, the only well, the only reason to keep it there is just that people who want larger phones, um, you ditch that, and suddenly there's this huge gap, right? So you've got the iPhone SE at four hundred, the current phones start at six fifty and go up from there. You know, if you want the larger one, the plus, then seven fifty plus. Um, so you'd have a three hundred fifty dollar price differential between the SE um, and you know the base model of the largest phone, and so the six kind of fills in the gap a little bit. You could certainly see, you know, the six might drop. Uh, this fall down to you know 450 um, at the base level, and then suddenly you have everything from four through 450 through six 550, 650, 750. You have kind of something at every 50 to 100 dollars above 400, and suddenly you've got kind of a range going all the way up with now larger phones all the way down to 450. And so that's the one reason why it makes sense to me is for somebody who really does want larger phones, and and that is important in a lot of these emerging markets. You know, the price point's really important, but these people also tend to gravitate towards the larger phones because they're not going to buy a phone and a tablet. And so they want a larger phone because it's going to meet those needs that that combination of devices would would meet for some people in mature markets. And so um, that's the one reason why I'm hesitant to call the iPhone SE kind of an emerging market killer because it's the larger devices that really sell well in those markets. So there will be some people in those markets that will make the trade-off between price and size and say, you know what, I'm going to get it anyway. Um, but you know there will be a lot of people who still want a larger phone, and so um, either keeping the older phones in market for longer, or you know selling refurbished versions. And that was something in Lisa Jackson's comments at the beginning. You know, she talked about the phones they get back through the iPhone upgrade program and the trade up program um, being sold back out to people in the vast majority of cases. And that's you know the refurbished phones and emerging markets is a great place to to sell those refurbished phones at a significant discount to the new ones. Um, and so I, I continue to think that will be a big part of the solution for emerging markets. Um, and emerging markets obviously aren't this homogenous blob. You know, there's lots and lots of different people in different countries that have different requirements, and, and we can't sort of say they all want the same thing. That's that's grossly unfair to them, um, and a horrible oversimplification. But the point is that there are some patterns in these things, and there are parts of emerging markets that can't buy anything that's over two hundred dollars. And Apple's not going to get there probably through any means anytime soon. Uh, but there's a large part of the kind of mid-market in these emerging markets that might well go for an iPhone SE as their first iPhone and then maybe later trade up something bigger or, um, you know, buy that instead of, uh, uh, you know, I was talking to one of the cell phone analysts, uh, cell phone reporters for PC Mag, a guy called Sasha Segan here at the event, and he was saying, you know, he'd done a lot of price comparisons since he announced the price and was finding that a lot of the kind of mid-range or, or even premium Android devices that are sold in these markets, so Xiaomi phones, ZTE phones, and so on, are sold at $400 for their very highest-end model. 
Uh, and so now the iPhone SE is very competitive with that, which makes it a much more compelling option for a lot of people for whom Xiaomi is kind of the next thing, the next best thing to actually buying an iPhone. Um, and now you can just buy an iPhone for the same price. So, and a brand new one with really good specs at that. Let's move on to, uh, do you have anything else you want to say about the iPhone? Uh, uh, no, not really. I, I, I mean, I, I think they're going to sell a lot of them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, Seconded. Yeah, and it's gonna it's gonna upend. I think a lot of the a lot of the analyst predictions that they had already sort of put in the books for twenty sixteen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, let's move on to the iPad Pro then, and uh, this again, well reported ahead of time. I, I didn't see any real surprises here. I think it was pretty much as expected. One of my big questions about the whole thing was what does this do to the iPad lineup as a whole and kind of how that's positioned and so on. And I think to the extent there was a surprise about the iPad Pro, it was how aggressively they talked about it being a PC replacement. Um, so explicitly talking about this 600 million people who have a PC that's five years old or older, which Phil Schiller described as just sad, um, <laughs> which got a good laugh from the people in the audience. Um, but, you know, that's a number that's been bandied about a lot by people who sell PCs, frankly, over the last few years, um, you know, trying to sell more PCs is saying, look, there's all these people with these devices we're due for an upgrade cycle. And now Apple comes in and says, you know what, we want them to upgrade from a PC to an iPad. Um, so I thought that was fascinating and, and selling it both as a driver of upgrades within the base and then as uh, something for somebody who's potentially replacing a PC or a laptop. Um, and, uh, you know, the upgrade cycle makes a ton of sense because you've got people on iPads at that 9.7 inch size, which is apparently two thirds of what they've ever sold. Um, you've got people on those who with each new iPad, there's a spec bump, but not really any significant new features. And this is the first iPad in several years that you can really do significant new stuff with that you couldn't do with the old one, whether it's working with the Apple Pencil, whether it's the smart keyboard, whether it's um, you know working really well with the multitasking and and the way the screen works and adapts to its environment, whether it's um, the, uh, the audio experience on it and so on and so forth. There's so much about this that's new and, and does new things and different things from what previous 10-inch iPads have done. Um, so it's a significant upgrade cycle. But yeah, the PC replacement thing's fascinating. Um, obviously, we saw some talk around that with the iPad Pro, but they never were that explicit about replacing PCs. And it's very clear now what they're going after. And in turn, that means it's kind of the first time arguably ever that Apple has had such a clear value proposition for the iPad, which has always been this sort of amorphous sort of, it can do this well, it can do that well. You know, when Steve Jobs first introduced it, it was mostly by reference to sitting in between other devices and doing certain things better. Uh, but it wasn't, you know, you buy an iPad for this one reason, you know, and now for the first time, arguably, you know, the iPad Pro line has this one specific reason to exist. And I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, I agree. You know, I, um, I'm really excited about the new iPad Pro. In fact, I'll be upgrading from an old iPad Mini. Um, I think once the rumors came out with what the new 9.7-inch iPad was going to be like, um, you know, I, I pretty much settled into a slightly bigger size, but not actually all that much heavier or more unwieldy than the Mini is. Um, and so I'm I'm really excited about that. I I thought, um, I was curious if they were going to be adding new features versus the larger iPad Pro, because that sometimes happens, you know, when the products are staggered by six months, mm -hmm. sometimes new things sneak in. I think the True Tone display 
is a really cool thing. You'll notice that, in fact, I think it was Phil Schiller that drew attention to somebody getting excited about what that display meant. Color, color accuracy in production environments is really essential. I mean, to be able to get the right color going. And it'll be interesting to see how well this works because it means, you know, I, I, I remember the old days from years ago when I, when I was a Mac tech consultant, you know, as a, as a side business to get through school. And uh, I remember, you know, helping graphic designers set up their displays and getting the color sync exactly right. So that way the color they had on screen was the color they were getting, you know, out of their print processes. And it'll be interesting to see how this True Tone thing works from a professional's perspective, because they've made such a big deal out of this being a professional tool. And you'll notice in all their marketing, it's, you know, they oriented a lot toward creative professionals. Mm -hmm. And and I could picture more and more graphic designers, as long as the software gets there, which it, it is in, in large measure. I mean, Adobe is, is attacking the iPad yeah. very, very seriously. I can picture more and more designers doing, you know, a huge chunk of their work on iPads. Right. And uh, the True Tone display... So that way you don't have to worry about ambient lighting giving you a different color perspective than what you're actually going to see printed on the paper. It'd be interesting to see how that shakes out. Yeah, absolutely. And it, the good thing is that you can manually turn it on and off and adjust it manually as well. And sure. so um, it won't just be the kind of thing where it's constantly changing on you based on whether somebody switches a light on or anything like that. So, um, but yeah, it'd be very interesting to see the details of how that works. But the, the funny thing is, is like the color accuracy of this thing this little, you know, this this relatively tiny device you can carry with you everywhere, everywhere puts to shame the color accuracy of the displays that graphic designers were working with years ago. Mm. I mean, it really is an amazing, it's, it's, it's an amazing comparison. Right, and just the resolution and everything else too. I mean, that's the thing. We've become so accustomed to this that we, we call these things incremental improvements because at this point they are kind of year on year or, or whatever the, the cycle is. But the reality is these are amazingly powerful computers that just get squeezed into smaller and smaller packages. And, you know, this thing that now weighs less than a pound and has this enormously powerful set of processes inside it, this great screen, the amazing audio experience that goes with all of that, the compatibility with these third-party devices and the touch sensitivity for the pencil and everything else, you know, we're really spoiled. And so it's easier to kind of write these things off as just incremental improvements. But it's amazing how far we've come. Um, and it's interesting too, you know, I mean, last fall's event, Tim Cook had this phrase about the iPad Pro being uh, the best implementation of Apple's vision of the future of computing. Uh, and yet it was in this fairly sort of niche sort of segment device that was never going to sell in large numbers. And so it was always inevitable it would come to other devices on the line. And, and now it has and it's in, in this most popular sort of size for the iPad and so it should sell in larger numbers. It's it is though you know a hundred dollars more than the iPad Air has been when new. Um, the iPad Air two sticks around but drops a hundred dollars in price without having a direct replacement, uh, and even though it's a year and a half old at this point. And so that was the the second of the devices today that dropped by a certain amount, even though it wasn't being replaced after the Apple Watch Sport that we talked about earlier. Um, and it just raises the question, and it's still entirely possible that Apple could launch a new iPad Air in the fall and that that line will live on in some form. Um, but it just feels like that the the emphasis in the iPad line over the last few months has really shifted to this Pro line. That's where Apple's investing a great deal. And, you know, Pros have traditionally been added in above and alongside uh, a non-Pro version, right? So the MacBook Pro and the MacBook, um, and the Mac Pro and the Mac. And... 
that hasn't kind of happened in the same way here, and that the iPad Air is getting older and older, the iPad Mini's become less and less important. And unless the iPad Air gets a decent upgrade in the fall, it feels like that part of the portfolio is being sort of ignored a little bit at the moment. And there's a risk that the people who traditionally bought iPads who don't see the value in this new iPad Pro line will sort of say, well, hang on, where's the iPad for me? And so I think it is really important that that gets an upgrade in the fall that you know brings it back um, on par with how good past iPad Airs have been and so on. And so I'm interested to see what they do with that in the fall, how how the specs differ between that and the iPad Pro, you know, to what extent it borrows some of the features from the new iPad Pros and to what extent they really uh, are careful to kind of differentiate it and keep it deliberately sort of below spec um, so that there's a clear reason for the $100 price differential. Well, and I think, so I, I think this is settling into the new PC sort of equivalent product for, for Apple in the sense that, you know, when, when the iPad was launched, there were all these comparisons to the iPhone, both in the sense that, hey, it's just a bigger iPhone, but also in the idea that people were expecting the same huge product. And, and, and it took off like crazy and is still one of the fastest selling consumer electronics products in history. Mm -hmm. But then it leveled off so quickly. Yeah. And uh, and then started declining. And I think this is really, I think when Apple says we see this as the future of computing, they really are saying, look, this is the equivalent to a laptop or a desktop. Right. You, you no longer, you, you don't, don't think of it as a mobile device. Think of it as a super portable laptop, mm -hmm. essentially. Then that comes with all the same upgrade cycles, you know, all the same use cases, you know, well, mostly the same use cases. And I think that's what's going to be happening here. And so with that psychology that seem, that Apple seems to be talking about, I think you're going to see just a, a pro and consumer division within their products, just like with uh, just just like with the laptop line. So I think we're going to have the pro line, which will be the larger models, and then you'll have the 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 consumer line and, and i don't know how they'll rename it i could picture them um taking the air name all the way across or they'll just keep it as air and mini and then those will just be known as the consumer models but right. um i think and and i think you're going to see the same three to four to five year upgrade cycles that they see in their desktops and laptops and we talked about this last mm -hmm. week but i think this pretty much like the fact that the ipad air 2 is still around um and that both that and the mini really could use an update, you know, come September, or October, I think we're going to be seeing, I think we're going to see that division. There's going to essentially be a pro iPad and a consumer iPad. Yeah, yeah absolutely. No, that's, that's interesting. That's absolutely what I'm expecting as well, assuming it gets that upgrade in the fall. And it's natural kind of as these products mature that you get this diversification to go after specific segments. And that's kind of what's going on here is that, the iPad Pro now has a, a narrower sort of target market, but perhaps more clearly defined as well, uh, while the iPad Air and Mini or whatever that ends up being called is, is sort of the general purpose iPad for everybody else. And maybe we'll even see other versions of that going forward. And obviously you see other manufacturers going after, say, the very low-end tablet market, and Amazon's a good example of that. So increasing kind of segmentation within the tablet market seems like a sign of maturity in that whole market as well. Um, so we've covered, I think, pretty much the whole event from start to finish in terms of the major things that were announced and, and so on. Um, was there anything that you wanted to talk about in terms of either the event as a whole or anything that we haven't mentioned yet? No, I, I thought we didn't talk about the nostalgia of the event. True, yeah, that 40 years and 40 seconds thing up front. 
for example. Right, the, mm. the, that up front and then the sort of farewell mm-hmm. to the town hall at the end. Yes. It, and now all of a sudden, I don't know why this didn't occur to me before, and I didn't read anybody else saying this, but now it, it makes sense why they say we're going to loop you in. It, I think it was a little homage to One Infinite yes. Loop. Because that is, you know, this time next year, it's all going to be in a different place. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's funny seeing Apple get nostalgic because like Tim Cook said at the beginning, they don't do very often. Right. Um, But there was a moment, in fact, there right at the end when he was talking about what a special place the town hall has been and all the big product announcements they've had there. I was just waiting for the one more thing to drop Mm. because it was like the perfect setup. And then he just started saying thank you. And I was like, oh, okay. (laughs) Especially because the event was so much shorter than others. You know, you never know. But uh, Mm -hmm. You know, it's funny. This is, I think, easily one of the most predictable of all the Apple events I remember in years and years and years Mm -hmm. in the sense that the details were all pretty much leaked. Right. You know, in fact, I wonder if really this event could have gone by as just press releases and been okay. Mm -hmm. Um, this This is one of the few Apple events I can remember where that's the case, where, you know, press releases might have been able, and, you know, product videos might have been able to, to do the equivalent so yeah no it's interesting i mean the one part that would have been hard to achieve in quite the same way at least have the same impact was the upfront stuff right so what we talked about at the beginning with the environmental stuff and care kit and so on that stuff's a lot right you get much wider audience for it if it's part of an event that that people who attend it feel they have to justify their attendance at it and write about it and so on and so um, which is funny because those aren't even products no they're not but it's in some ways if you just announce those in a press release nobody would really pay any attention to them at all and so by making them part of a keynote, I think you at least latch them onto something that people are already covering, and so they'll probably get a broader play, um, you know, from, from one way or another. Um, but yeah, it was, you know, as far as the reporting ahead of time, I think the one surprise, as I said, was the price on the iPhone SE and then the price on uh, the price drop on the Apple Watch Sport. Um, you know, those were the two things that I didn't really see predicted anywhere outright. Um, even, you know, from people who got a lot of the other details right. So that was interesting. Um, but, yeah, no huge surprises. And as far as sort of positioning and that kind of thing, it was relatively predictable with the the, the PC replacement thing being one of the perhaps bigger surprises on the iPad Pro, but otherwise generally pretty much as we were expecting. And so, um, you know, I feel good about everything that we talked about last week in our sort of preview episode. Um, we've hit some of those same things today. But... You know, it's always always great to be at these things to see these see it feel kind of how things are in the, in the actual auditorium itself. And you know, this is only the second event that I've attended here in the auditorium. And um, you know, it is a very small venue. It will be good when there's a bigger venue to use um, next year and beyond, uh, because it really forces them to kind of narrow the audience for for these kinds of events, and they can have much bigger events. You know, this was. The last one that was here was 18 months ago when they announced the iPad Air 2 and, and a couple of other things. And, um, you know, this is uh, it's a venue that's probably uh, run its course at this point and, and isn't really fit for purpose anymore. So it's a good thing that they're going to have a bigger space to, to move to going forward. But uh, always fun to be here on the campus and, and to see, uh, you know, the executives up close and impersonal and they often milling around afterwards as well. So that's fun. Well, I think enough nostalgia from us, um, but uh, we've uh, had a good discussion. Hopefully you've enjoyed it. Um, this is going to go out earlier than our episodes usually do, so we won't be with you again until probably next Thursday, um, which is our usual sort of time slot when we publish new episodes. But we hope it was worthwhile. We welcome your feedback as always. Um, and hit the website at podcast.beyonddevices for 
uh, other notes and things relating to today's episode. So thanks again for joining us and we'll be with you again next week. Bye-bye.